The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today, 1984, Episode 7, Feed the World. In this episode, we will cover the months of November through the end of December. last few weeks of November and negotiations for purchase of ATV music is in full swing. As you may recall, back in late September, early October, ATV Music, owners of the Lennon-McCartney song catalog, was up for sale. Entertainment lawyer John Branca, attorney for Michael Jackson who had negotiated a few song publishing purchases for him, informed the singer of the sale that also included the Beatles catalog. Jackson was excited and determined to obtain the catalog. John Branca tells the story. One of my jobs was to go out and find copyrights. We bought the Sly and the Family Stone catalog and a number of other things. And I had my ear to the ground calling people all the time. And one day I heard Associated Television Music Publishing was for sale. And this was a, an English company that was affiliated with a TV station in England that just so happened owned 251 Beatles songs, which was almost every Beatles song, and the songs of Little Richard. The Beatles, back when they were a big group in, in the 60s, the tax rates in the UK exceeded 90%, if you can believe that. Let me tell you how it will be There's one for you, 19 for me Cause I'm the tax man Yeah, I'm the tax man George Harrison wrote a song called Tax Man about it. Should 5% appear too small Be thankful I don't take it all 
and so to avoid personal service tax on, on the income songs they created, these songs were placed in a corporation that created some capital gains income, except for one thing, the Beatles lost control of the company. And it got taken over by a robber baron, and it was so they received their songwriter royalties, but they no longer own their own music. And these are some of the greatest songs in the history of rock music, anyway. According to Bert Reuter, who is negotiating the sale of ATV Music for Robert Holmes Accord, the owner of ATV... We had given Paul McCartney first right of refusal, but Paul didn't want it at that time, so Michael Jackson's people uh, approached us and we negotiated with him. Initially, back in September-October of this year, ATV offered the entire 4,000 titles in their music catalog to McCartney and the estate of John Lennon for 20 million pounds. McCartney and Ono offered 10 million pounds just for the Beatles catalog. ATV insisted on selling a complete catalog of all titles, to which McCartney and Ono turned it down, calling it too pricey. Paul said, it's too pricey. Too pricey. Leave it alone. And Michael's view was, these songs, you can't put a price on a Picasso. These were irreplaceable. They were the jewels of the music business, and he wanted them. So... We started making bids to buy the company. Bronca said, catalogs usually bring five to seven times the annual net publisher's share. We knew someone had bid 39 million and we wanted to be above the crowd. On November the 20th, 1984, Michael communicated the $46 million bid to ATV's owner, Robert Holmes, a court, and at the same time requested a meeting. Holmes A. Court was a South African-born Australian entrepreneur and Australia's first billionaire. Holmes A. Court was one of the world's most feared corporate raiders through the 1980s, having built his empire single-handedly from virtually nothing to a diversified set of holdings and a media group with an estimated valuation of two billion Australian dollars. Everybody told us we were overpaying. So to try to secure the deal, I followed a strategy where we did the due diligence on this company before ever having a signed and enforceable deal. 
And so we did the tax due diligence, the financial accounting due diligence, and the legal due diligence. Probably spent a million dollars at that time, and a lot of effort. We had people in England, we had people in America going through the books and records. And Holmes and Court knew that. I thought it was our competitive advantage, but he looked at it as our competitive disadvantage because he said, these fools have spent so much time and money doing the due diligence on this, they can't afford to lose it. What I didn't bargain for was the fact that this man could not keep his word no matter what. So every time we shook hands on a deal, he decided he would disappear and I'd go back to him and he'd change it. It was, it was more and the price kept going up. Jackson team continued throughout the balance of the year to perform their due diligence on ATV music as Robert Holmes Accord continued to accept additional bid offers. A frustrated Jackson gave explicit written instructions to Branca. Yes, he gave me a note which I still have. John Johnson had said to him, don't over-negotiate if it's something you really want. Don't over-negotiate, just pay the price. So Michael wrote me a note, Branca, don't over-negotiate. Take Johnson's advice. This is my catalog. Oh! Oh! Michael Jackson. Thriller. He was like cash rich, baby.
November 21st, George Harrison's handmade films release, A Private Function, starring Michael Palin, has its movie premiere in London at the Odeon Cinema in Haymarket. My Lord Mayor, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, it is my great pleasure to propose to you now a toast. films invite you to a private function. The happy. <laughs> a private function for only the select. Goldman, our mildest. They're very well off. Quite apart from anything else, Henry, just think what we shall be having to eat. Betty! Not much, Doctor. And it's a bit since we've been. He put on a couple of stars. A private function in the leanest of times. Are you not eating this bread? A private function starring Michael Palin. He's put his foot on my bonnet. Take your foot off my bonnet. And Maggie Smith. Who's this woman behind me? The corrupt of this wine. Wish I had one or two maraschino cherries. Did you sure we had cocktails? Don't have cocktails. I'm carrying you, Gilbert. A private function that was almost a public disgrace. Steal a pig. It's not as if there are pigs to steal. If there were pigs to steal, the butchers would steal them, wouldn't they? Oh, it's you all over. All talk, promises. You were going to take this town, Gilbert. We are going to look that silly. Silly? We're finished. We've spent a lot of money on that pig, Howard. It's my understanding it doesn't exist. You'll wish it existed on Thursday when you're sitting down to a scratchy bit of lettuce and tomato. Maybe we could put it to sleep. I think it's gas. No, no. I can smell gas. It's not terrible, but you could smell gas. It's mother. Take your clothes off. What? Strip. 
Help me blunt. Joy, come on. Come early to avoid getting a seat near the toilet. You got something we want. Something that belongs to us. A private function from Handmade Films. This premiere is a charity event with the profits going to the Save the Children's work around the world, including the Disaster Relief Program for Victims of the African Famine. In attendance this evening is Her Royal Highness Princess Anne. Harrison, meanwhile, was to be found in Australia, gearing up for Derek Taylor's book tour. On November 23rd, Paul McCartney, now in London, continues to promote his movie Broad Street as the film is about to have its UK release. I can wait another day Until I call you On the agenda today in London, Paul is a guest on the BBC One special program Hardy with McCartney, with host Russell Hardy. In the 1979 Guinness Book of Records, there was an award to my guest this evening which was a triple superlative for 100 million albums, 100 million singles and 60 gold discs. And it rightly recognised him as the most popular music composer ever. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul McCartney. They've recognised you. They they know who you are. Last time we worked together, which is about a year ago, you were actually mixing with George Martin the tracks of Broad Street, which is about to burst onto us, and that was the last time we met. And it's opening Mm -hmm. when? Next Thursday, isn't it? Yes. Any trepidation? What, me? Nervous? No. Terrified. (laughs) But do you you keep your fingers crossed, are you? Very much so, and anything else I can find offered to you. Well, yes, this is right. Recently, moving forward into areas which might be dangerous for you, artistically I'm not talking about, which brings us to Broad Street. Mm. Now, it's, it's a very big, slightly crazy step for you to take, isn't it? Because you, te- you took everything on. Just tell, mm. tell us what you took on. Well, I wrote the thing originally, the film. which is the first um, cheeky step. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you do, when you do stuff like that, you just do it out of the art of it. You just do it for the fun of it. You know, you don't uh, make a painting or write a song to be criticised later. You don't think of that. 
you just do it. You know, it's the, the spur of the moment. You do it, you get it all together. And uh, so having written it, I think I was always going to walk into a wall of criticism there because most of the people who are criticising me are writers. And I think a lot of them will have got screenplays, you know, and they think I could do better than that. So um, it was a little bit dodgy that way, but... Um, as I say, we went into it to make a film, to have a bit of fun, to get into the acting, to sing some songs and make some music, to put it all together as a British film. Uh, so I'm just happy that we did it. Um, Let's just tell the people what it's actually about, because it's not a complicated thing. No. I mean, it's a, it's a day in the life of, of a pop star who may or may not be called McCartney. Yeah, and it's some tapes go missing. Some tapes go missing. And the fellow who's suspected of taking them has got a criminal record. So those ingredients go throughout the film and... Uh, and I sing take... a couple of tunes as well. There's a, a sequence in Broad Street where a huge ballroom, which I think you built at Elstree, is used to give us all an enormous glimpse of a sort of fantasy ball, fantasy dance. This is it. One, one two, two, one, one, two, two three, three, four. You touch briefly on the fact that people who may write about it may be writers and not people who make music and make films. Yeah. It's not being well received in the United States. Well, it hasn't been badly received, actually. But with me, if there's like 25% bad criticism, that becomes the story. There's actually, there's been 75% right. been very good reviews, but you don't notice them. Okay. <laughs> but, and do it's you not care? as good a story. Do you care? Um, well, I mean, I'm glad there's 75% good reviews. Um, you can't. Uh, I care, yes. Of course you, you, you Of course you do, everyone cares. But you can't uh, ignore it, is there? You've you got know. red blood inside you. That's right, Russell. Who shall we hit? <laughs> Don't you simply want to stand for the rest of your life, as I do, under a Niagara of unqualified praise? Well, sounds all right to me. <laughs> <laughs> because one of the things you did also in, in Broad Street 
is uh, where you go out into the street yourself. You're not that old yeah, man who goes down the street. Right, now, yeah. what made you go out into the street and play? Again, a lot of the things in the film, uh, a lot of the sort of extra ideas were suggested by just talking to the director. Mm. And I said to him that when we started off, that was where we started off, a guitar, and you'd walk home from each other's house and you'd sort of play your guitars as you went, you know. Mm. Uh, so that, that's the kind of, the basic thing that I do, really. And I told him how I liked it. And I quite fancied getting out on the streets, anywhere. The real get, streets? Yeah, just getting disguise on. Mm -hmm. and going out in the real street and just busking for a while, you know, and see if anyone recognised me. If they didn't, I'd just try and be, you know, real bus... And a in a little way, it was a sort of plea for busking, because they tried to ban it a while ago, didn't they? I thought that was a bit lousy. So you went to Leicester Square? <clears throat> so I went down to Leicester Square and they dropped me off. Uh, first of all, I went to a car park and got a lot of uh, grot on me. They dropped me off and here I am. Well, suddenly, I'm not the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me, though I believe it. Yes, hey, why she had to go, I don't know she wouldn't say. I said, I'm in wrong, no, God bless you, Squire. Thank you, sir. Oh, the trouble's tomorrow, It's a candid camera. It's a sort of candid camera. Yeah, it was a candid camera. There was a van, uh, you know, darkened windows opposite me there. Yeah. How much did you collect? Oh, it was good, actually. I collected something like four or five pounds. And how long? Um, I was out there for about an hour. And there was some great people. There was this, um, this punk come up to me. And he turned out to be American, like a visiting punk. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he said, are you Paul McCartney? I said, you kidding? Yes. <laughs> He went off, you know. And then there was this other, this great fella who was uh, an old jock. And he was obviously out for a night on the town in Soho, you know. And he had a pocket full of change he didn't want. So he comes up to me, he's using me like a lamppost, you know. <laughs> he says, are you doing great, son? He never looked at me, he goes, <laughs> He unloads all his change on me and wanders into the night, you know. But uh, it was funny, actually, because I said to the assistant director on the film, I said, you, sometimes you get, you get a bit guarded, you know. I said, What's going to happen here is somebody tomorrow is going to say, Paul McCartney busked last night in the street, and he got £3.50, £4.50, and wouldn't you know it, he kept it. <laughs> right? You know, that's, that's the sort of thing they want to do to me these days. It's a, it's a little current vogue. Anyway, so I said, well, to counteract that, what you must do is take this money to the Siemens mission. I don't want to touch that. He says, right. And he took it down. We went to the charity. They're, and they're, they already are there to take a swipe at you when they want to. Well, I mean, you know, what happens is if you kind of get some success. I mean, now the story about me and my money. I mean, it's just growing daily, have you noticed? <laughs> I think I'm on about £60 a minute now. <laughs> it's not what Russell's paying me, I tell you that. <laughs> I haven't even got a watch but on. But you're, you know? you're using your money as well. Are no, but I mean, it, it's, I'm not, it's not true. For one, I'm not on £60 a minute, it's just that it, the story goes just, up. It feels like it. It feels like it. <laughs> <laughs> All I've got to say to you is give our regards to Linda, give okay. our regards to the family, give all our regards to Broad Street, and on behalf of everybody here and everybody who's been watching, I'm giving my regards to you and thank you. Thank you very much. A few days later, on November 25th, McCartney involves himself in a special Christmas charity record. Although unable to attend the recording session, Paul contributes a few brief spoken messages that are inserted into the track, Feed the World. 
The charity is to help the starving drought victims in Africa. The recording is organized by Bob Geldof of the band The Boomtown Rats, who has a very distinctive laugh. from Cultural saying, feed the world. There are 11 million people starving in one country. Doesn't it make you think? Merry Christmas, everyone. Hello, this is Gary Kemp from Spandau Ballet. Happy Christmas, everyone. This is John Taylor from Duran Duran. Happy Christmas, everybody, too. Hello, this is Paul McCartney. Sorry I can't be with you. <laughs> I can't get my last right Hi, this is Simon from Duran Duran. I'd like to say, I'd like to wish you a happy Christmas. Okay, well, this is Bono here, the singer with you two, wishing you a happy Christmas and a merry new year. Is that right? Hello, this is Paul McCartney. Feed the world. Let me know it's good. Sorry, I can't remember that. I was up there. Hello, I'm Shimon. Happy Christmas. I'm Sarah from Nanarama. And from me too, Karen. I'm Paul Weller from the Style Council. I wish you all a happy Christmas. This is Charlie Fingers from Boomtown Arts, and uh, I'd like to wish everyone a happy Christmas. Hello, this is Major from uh, Autobots. I thought there was something really good here for um, Just have a good Christmas and enjoy yourself. This is Stuart Adamson. This is Tony Button. This is Martha Zigney. This is Bruce Lawson from Big Country. Feed the people. Stay alive. Hello, this is Glenn Gregory from Big Country. Wishing everybody a very, very Christmas. This is David Bowie. It's Christmas 1984. And there are more starving folk on our planet than ever before. Please give a thought for them this season and do whatever you can, however small, to help them live. Have a peaceful New Year.
now 8 a.m. in the morning of the 26th. We've been here 24 hours and I think it's time we went home. So from me, Bob Geldof and Midge, we'd say good morning to you all and a million thanks to everyone on the record. Have a lovely Christmas. Bye. On November 27th, George Harrison arrives in Auckland, New Zealand with Derek Taylor to promote the book, 50 Years Adrift. George Harrison returned after an absence of 20 years. The former Beatle is here to launch a book written by the man who handled the group's publicity. Unlike the Beatles, the book's rather exclusive, a limited edition of 2,000 worldwide and costing $550 each. George acted as editor and contributed 15,000 words. day in the afternoon, George and Derek sit down in front of 300 press, photographers, and news crews. George Harrison chose New Zealand for his first press conference in many years. But why New Zealand? It's a funny thing to come and do, come all the way to New Zealand for lunch. Uh, well, because of my involvement with um, Derek and the publisher, and also because New Zealand was... Uh, just a place I wanted an excuse to come back here. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to join me in doing something that Auckland should do. On your behalf, I want to thank the police and the Auckland City Council Traffic Department. We put this show on for you people. Come in. Paul McCartney. Ringo Starr. And George Harrison. known as the quiet beetle but today he had it mostly to himself as he held court at a press conference to mark the launching of the book 50 years adrift the book includes a detailed account of the heyday of the world's most famous rock group and while it may still be true that all you need is love to own this book also be prepared for a hefty price tag it costs $550 in a limited edition of 2000 George how uh, how easy was it working with uh... Derek. Very easy, very easy. That's why I've known him 20 odd years. It's um, very simple really. We share many things in common and enjoy the same kind of jokes. So it's pretty easy. We thought that this would be uh, a good book to do it this way because it is in in a way very colloquially written, although there's some 
there are some literary allusions, is not really a coffee table book. It's an odd one because it's enormously elaborate, as you can see, with gold on the edge. But once you get inside, it's an amiable um, a walk through the 50 years. So I, I don't know whether there ever will be one quite like that, and certainly I won't be writing it. My role in a book like this is um, simple because it's it's gone over a period of three years. So every so often I've just been presented with a bundle of typed papers which I'd read through with my red pen and either correct or uh, eliminate little bits which I thought, you know, like I think everybody needs to have an objective point of view because sometimes, you know, we all do it. You tend to get into something for your own personal reasons and it's a bit of a wandering away from a reader's point of view. So it's been spread over three years, so it's, it's not really been, if I had to have done it all in one session, say, it would have been um, a difficult task, but the way it's been done over that uh, time span, it's been quite interesting and enjoyable. In fact, I'm negotiating to buy the rights of 50 Years Adrift to make it into a movie with Robert De Niro playing Derek Taylor. <laughs> Who would, who would play George Harrison? I, well, I'm not in the book, am I? Oh, well, he's just a minor part. We get one of the ruttles or something like that. <laughs> Apart from books, what's George's attitude to music today? Well, I don't have to make records any longer, which is a relief, <laughs> because um, I'm not really of the competitive nature. You know, I don't want to have to go out there promoting and doing all this stuff which is necessary now. I mean... Let's face it, it's uh, a sort of cutthroat business, and I'm not really into that, so I no longer have to make records. But having said that, i found since I don't have a commitment to, to the music industry, I have been writing much more music than I've done in the past. I mean, for instance, the last couple of months I've written about 28 songs, and I make demos, which are much better, because they can be good quality demos, but... Um, you know, there's something good about uh, demos because they don't, uh, you know, when you get making a record, it gets serious and, you know.
perform live again? Well, I don't, what do you think this is? <laughs> Still working, really. Me, music, yeah. I don't know. I doubt it, although it's too much trouble, you know. It really is a lot of trouble. And I'm not sure if anybody wants to see George, why, everyone's avoided uh, John Lennon's death, but what about Paul McCartney's uh, life? <laughs> Since the Beatles, do you still listen to Paul? Do you keep in touch? What's your relationship with the young people? I have recently been very much in touch with Paul, and um, his uh, musically, uh, see all the pens are coming out of this one. <laughs> I love it. I think uh, "No More Lonely Nights" is a lovely song. I very much I like it a lot. I haven't seen his movie, so I can't comment. What's the treatment of the old Beatles numbers now? Well, uh, I've not really heard it all. I've heard um, Eleanor Rigby and For No One, I think. It's, it's okay, it's okay. Is it, is it pleasing on your I can't understand why he did it. It makes me think it must be because he got the publishing of it or something back off of Salou <laughs> Greed. Do you think it was No. <laughs> he wrote the songs. It's like, like he says. I mean, if I wanted to sing Here Comes the Sun, is that sacrilege? I mean, I wrote it. I mean, it's the same. Paul wrote those songs and good on him. He can do them. I think he would have um, you know, been better off to have not done so many of them and, you know, had more new tunes. But... He's not doing so bad. One more, folks. George, um, have you come across Julian Lennon at all, and what do you think his future might be? I haven't seen him over the last two years, but two years ago I spent a lot of time with him. And, uh, you know, I'll try to um, sort of give him a bit of help and direction. And he went through a couple of years of, which you probably read in the papers, going to clubs and, you know, being um, sucked in to situations that he could have should have avoided but i think now having done that he's a much smarter wiser person i've seen him just on tv doing interviews and singing his uh, song i think he's got a great future as a musician and a songwriter and i think as a human he's real charming he's got the smartness of john but he's got a softer edge He's a sweetheart. I just would like to ask you if you'd like to comment on the irony of you as in the 60s being as a journalist presenting the Beatles and here suddenly you're having to use a former Beatle to present your book. It all seems a little strange. Well, the stranger the better. The more paradox there is, I mean, the more paradox we acknowledge, uh, the more we can understand the nonsense of uh, absurdity of being alive and meet, meeting an Alpenhorn player up by the War Memorial who has just bought a car to tour around New Zealand and uh, 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 coming through Moscow uh, from Geneva to get here. I mean, that's uh, that was a good way of starting the visit, yeah. wasn't it? The truth of is stranger than fiction, anyway. It wasn't just George Harrison's views and philosophy that were covered at the press conference. Someone had always wondered how to play the opening chord of A Hard Day's Night. And to answer your question, it's F with a G on the first string. Thank you very much. Your little finger. Thank you very much. Sounds better on a 12-string. Okay. Ex-Beatle George Harrison talking to a large and attentive audience of journalists in Auckland today. Meanwhile, on the same day, November 28th, over in Liverpool, Paul attends the UK premiere of his film Give My Regards to Broad Street at the Odeon Cinema.
Before the premiere, the Liverpool Council presents Paul with the Freedom of the City Award. It's taken Liverpool Council nearly two decades to realise what Mersey folk have known all along. The Beatles were the finest ambassadors the city ever had. So this afternoon, the fans gathered and the City Fathers rolled out the carpet to bestow on Paul McCartney Liverpool's most cherished honour, the freedom of the city. If those outside were too young to remember Beatlemania, then those inside the city's Picton Library had years and memories to spare. Watched by wife Linda, the council's chairman handed over the scroll to the former Beatle, who told the assembly, I'm chuffed. What can a freeman do? You know, what kind of special privileges come with it? Can you go into Derek Hatton's office, for instance? <laughs> no, and, you know, and ask to see that illegal budgie he's been keeping there. I know he's got He now joins a list of freemen that includes Gladstone, Kitchener, and former Liverpool City football manager Bob Paisley. And probably none of them had walked to the platform for the ceremony with their hands in their pockets. He's the only Beatle to return in person to receive the freedom of the city. Ringo Starr is still expected to come, but George Harrison has said he will not return. It was no coincidence that McCartney chose tonight in Liverpool for the British premiere of his new film, Give My Regards to Broad Street. Several hundred fans gathered outside the cinema behind police lines waiting for the couple to arrive. When they did, for those old enough to remember, it was just like the old days. Paul McCartney came home to a familiar tune. And there were shades of Beatlemania about the reception, although this time it was more affectionate than hysterical. The film has been panned by the critics, variously described as a string of pop videos loosely knitted around a thin plot. Not that anyone cared in Liverpool tonight. When it goes on general release on Friday, this is one city where there'll be few seats in the house to spare. Colin Baker, News at 10, Liverpool. The next day, November 29th, following the Liverpool UK premiere of McCartney's film Give My Regards to Broad Street, the English press prints several unfavorable reviews of the film. Paul is not disturbed by the negative reviews and agrees to an interview with an old Liverpool schoolmate, Peter Sissons of BBC News 4. The film itself has already been roughly handled by film critics in the States, and after it's showing in Liverpool last night, it got another bad press in today's papers here. In a moment, I'll be talking live to Paul McCartney from Leicester Square, but first, Nick Glass assesses the film and the critical reaction. Paul McCartney turned 42 years ago and decided to try something new. He wrote a screenplay. Give My Regards to Broad Street is the result, his first film venture since Let It Be 14 years ago. The cast consists of family and friends, and the accent inevitably is on music. McCartney's talents as singer and songwriter aren't in doubt. His film is another matter altogether. It took two years to make and cost some $9 million, some of it Paul's money. And the suspicion is that it's turning into a $9 million turkey. One, two, three, four! McCartney seems to have ignored the fact that writing for the screen is a highly refined craft. The director, Peter Webb, was making his first feature, and it shows. But then he was working with the thinnest of plots. The film is about a day in the life of a pop singer called Paul McCartney. 
the master tapes of a McCartney album go missing at the start of the film, then turn up an hour and 40 minutes later at the end. The publicists describe it as a full-scale musical with a quixotic plot. McCartney himself calls it an old-fashioned musical and a good night out. He went to the States for the film's opening there last month with his wife Linda, but the promotion doesn't seem to have helped. The American reviewers sharpened their knives. Variety said the film was characterless, bloodless and pointless, a feeble concoction. The Washington Post headlined its review, McCartney's Wrong Way Broad Street. Give my regards to Broad Street, it said, is the worst movie of the year. It is egomania run riot. And an American television correspondent wasn't any kinder. McCartney's performances are lifeless. He can't act, but even when he sings, he seems bored, as if he's above performing for us. Ringo seems bitter, not funny. Linda is painfully self-conscious. This is little more than a $9 million home movie. Compared to the Beatles films, give my regards to Broad Street, needs help. The film opened in the States in 311 cinemas. Now in its fourth week of release, it's showing in just 28. And according to the Hollywood trade papers, it's only taken some $1.4 million at the box office. Back home, where the film was premiered in Liverpool last night, the reviews have been equally harsh. Today's Guardian says the film offers an object lesson in how not to integrate musical numbers into a narrative. The Sun says Paul's oldie is no goldie. With a gossamer-thin storyline, it is overblown video rubbish. The Daily Star said you can't revive a corpse, and this film is a complete non-starter. The Times has a review out tomorrow, saying that generally this must be the worst film that ever cost $9 million and two years' work. Ultimately, of course, the film will succeed or fail on the strength of McCartney's music. If it doesn't make its money back on cinema release, there's always the video market and a sale to be made to television. And of course, it should help sell a few more McCartney albums. Well, Paul McCartney joins us now live from his premiere party. Get out of that, Paul. Hi, Pete. How are you? I'm very well. I'm yes. a long time no see. Well, I hate him. I can't stand him. I hate his music. I think it's a home movie. It should never have been made. What do you reckon? Um, well, I haven't seen it yet. I'm, res I'm reserving judgment till later tonight when you've been kind enough to invite me to see it. Listen, um, the, a lot of what you said was wrong. Um, it's so taken over 1.4 million. It's in the top 20 of the American films. The reviews have been about 50% good, 50% bad, all of which you showed, I notice. What about equal time, Peter? And as an old Lyobian, I'm totally ashamed of you. I went to school with this man. I should explain to you. I'll explain another time what an old Lyobian is. But tell me what point the critics missed, the ones that we showed. Um, I think it, making a film like this with music and plot, trying to mix the two, is actually a very difficult genre. And people, I think, don't realize how difficult it is to do that. Um, the people who liked it weren't expecting too much so that the kind of slight plot that it has, my fault because I wrote it, um, it really doesn't kind of get in the way of the music. I think personally that the, um, it's okay, you know, and I think the more you see it, it the better it is. But uh, what can I say? That was a terrific reviews you just uh, laid on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say the more, more you see it, people will only see it once, won't they? No. You want them to come back, seeing it time after time? Physically force them back to see it time after time, Peter. So, generally, you didn't, you didn't expect these rough reviews? No, generally, I did expect uh, this and rougher. But the thing is, I mean, I've never let that put me off in the past. If you remember, uh, Sgt. Pepper had terrible reviews. She Loves You was like one of the worst records of the year. And Van Gogh had his ear cut off and never sold a painting. 
would you like to take this opportunity to say a few words to the critics who we quoted? Well, not really, Peter. Some of them, uh, my best friends are critics. How much money do you stand to lose if it fails? Nothing. Why is that? Well, because it's a 20th Century Fox's film, and uh, already it's not actually losing money. I say, what happens is with me, as you probably know, being in the uh, media, is that if I do attract some bad reviews, those are the ones that are shown. And you'll notice those are the only ones you showed, uh, and your man there who was doing the criticism, it was all he mentioned. In actual fact, there is another side to it, and they're, they're people, and they are going to see it, not in huge droves, but uh, as you probably know also, this isn't a massive budget film. Uh, the man's talking like $9 million is a huge budget. It's actually a very small budget. Um, so for what it costs to make, it's actually doing quite well. One of the American critics you saw there described it as a $9 million home movie. Yeah. I mean, was it an indulgence for your own fads? No, the thing is, you see, anything I do, um, I think looks like an indulgence. You know, people tend to think, if I, even if I write a song, it's like, oh, he's indulging himself again. But when you start off on a piece of art or whatever you want to call it, you start off with enthusiasm, you know? And if, in the end, you can't please everyone, I mean, I'm still happy the, uh, with the enthusiasm we generated during the film. And I personally actually like it, and I'm proud to have done it. It's a British film, it's made. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who can talk a great movie, but they don't often get on the screen. Um, I think, you know, if you were to show some of the better reviews, I think you'd create probably a more equal picture. But you see, you, you have the money where, where other people collect stamps to yeah. make a film occasionally for yourself, don't you? If you well, feel no, that's, like it. no, well, that's what you tend to say about me, but I didn't consider it like that, you know. I don't uh, come on like that. You know, the thing about my money is I happen to have got successful writing and singing songs. I mean, I didn't come into it. I don't do it just for the money. I actually do it for the art and the enjoyment. I think in the long run that will be proved. But if you remember back to Magical Mystery Tour, that was even worse reviews than this has had. And if you watch that film now, I mean, I think it's damn good to see John Lennon up there singing I'm the Walrus. What do you think is the best thing you yourself have ever done? Met you, I think, Pete. <laughs> how can I, how can I how stop? How can you follow that? How can I follow that? I'll, I'll follow it by, by, by stopping and winding up the programme. Paul McCartney, nice to see you again. Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. And uh, that's Channel 4 News. I'm off down there to have a look at the film, make my own judgment. Good evening. <laughs> After the interview, Paul leaves to attend the London premiere of Broad Street at the Empire Theatre in Leicester Square. He arrives with his wife Linda. Ringo Starr and his wife Barbara, George's wife Olivia, and Tracy Allman. On the same day, November 29th, George Harrison and Derek Taylor depart Auckland en route to Sydney, Australia. The next day, the pair attend another promotional press conference at the Sydney Opera House. The cameras were there. George Harrison is in Sydney tonight. 
having attended a luncheon in the city earlier today to launch his memoirs. 20 years ago, Australia had never seen anything like it. Teenage hysteria as the Beatles stormed the country. Today's appearance at the Opera House by George Harrison was a far more sedate affair. George didn't want to talk about his time as an idol to millions. He's here to launch a book on 50 years of popular music. The book was written by longtime Beatle associate Derek Taylor, and it's fairly exclusive. Only 2,000 copies were printed, and they sell at $375 each. George Harrison's normally reluctant to talk to media, but Morris Parker managed to get this personal interview. You know, the Beatles is a thing of the past, and that's all. You know, it's like, you know, it's pointless us talking about the Second World War, although they tend to talk about it forever, you know, like they miss it. I think it's better to be here now and live in the present, and uh, that's the only reluctance I have about the Beatles. But generally, it was a happy time, and we had fun, but it's over, you know, that's all. mentioned the present then how does George Harrison see the present right now the present well the present right now is a, a sort of whitewashed wall in the garage underneath Sydney Opera House with a sun gun on my face but the present when I walk out of the car park will be the sunshine of Sydney and a lot of nice smiling faces and friends and it's very enjoyable particularly down here because we don't have uh, cruise missiles in our back gardens you worried about that? Well, uh, I'm not exactly overjoyed with it, you know. But, it, I mean, you have to live up there to feel that because it's sort of like um, people playing cowboys and Indians in your backyard, you know. It has nothing to do with us. It's just two mighty powers just using us as the excuse to uh, practice, you know, warfare. Gotta save, gotta save, gotta save. Someone else may want to use it So far as 
with a Describe yourself as a legend. I wouldn't. You wouldn't. No. In his own a lunchtime. legend in my own lunchtime. Yeah. December. Paul and Linda's interview with freelance journalist Joan Goodman, conducted at the McCartney's MPL offices in Soho, London is published in this month's Playboy magazine. This in-depth interview covers Paul's movie, How He Met Linda, The Beatles, Wings, John's death, and the couple's relationship with Yoko. At McCartney's Hog Hill Studios in Rye on December 1st, Paul, working with musician and producer David Foster, recorded some new material.
David Foster. When we're mixing a record, I, I play piano and bass and at least those two instruments, if not many more instruments on every record that I do. Every single record that I make since the beginning of time, other than when there's real musicians involved, um, comes from my fingers. I'm not one of these guys that has a camp and that has a room full of guys that are pounding out music and I'm just kind of like overseeing it. Although that's a fine way to make records too, but every single thing comes from my fingers. But what I've learned to do uh, is to completely separate myself from those skills. So when I'm mixing a record or assisting in the mixing, because I'm not an engineer, I don't even think of myself as the piano player or as the songwriter or as the bass player or as the guy that wrote the string chart or as the guy, I, I just totally focus on what's necessary for the record.
Foster went on to say that of all the songs they worked on, the track We Got Married was the weakest. When I'm producing a song that I wrote, uh, I'm, I'm you know, trying to uh, uh, get them to do it the way I, I want them to do it. So it's kind of a more of a dictatorship for the most part, unless they just won't play ball with me. You know, you obviously have a lot of ownership when you wrote the song, and you're also a producer. When I'm just producing a song that I didn't write, um, I have a little more flexibility. I'm not, I'm not as much of a dictator in, in, in that, those circumstances.
some work with David Foster, who's a producer, a Canadian producer. And uh, we, we did a couple of tracks, which I'll finish off with him. So I'm doing bits and pieces for a new album, and then going to put my feet up for Christmas. Not pleased with recordings, these sessions were shelved. December 8th, remembering John Lennon. It's been four years since his tragic murder, and the world mourns again. In Australia... Beatle George Harrison talked about the death of his friend John Lennon. Everybody in this room has had friends who've died, or parents, or relatives, or something. It's not a, a particularly uh, happy affair at the best of times, let alone when some loony does it. It affects you uh, the same as Gandhi or Mrs. Gandhi or Kennedy, anybody, except it's a bit closer to home, that's all. Question, thank you. What about your family? Are you concerned at the moment with the recent um, kidnapping? That, um, that isn't process? recent. That is only recent in the newspapers. If that affair happened oh, ages ago. And the ongoing worry for you and your family? The only ongoing worry is the way people take something, whether it's for real or if it's false, and for the sake of filling a bit of print, they hype some mad story, you know? That doesn't help. I think that doesn't help. Uh, I think that contributed to John's uh, downfall in a way, because if you notice before he got shot, there was a upsurge in publicity saying, you know, all that, yeah, well, you know, he's got three apartments and a cow that cost $2,000 or something. You know, and there's general negativity that uh, can be put out. You know, we can all be positive or negative, but like we said earlier about something else, that uh, about people writing books about the Beatles, for instance, there does seem to be a tendency for people to be nasty rather than nice. And if I said I really knew you well, what would your answer be? If you were here today,
And if I say I really loved you And was glad you came along Then you were here today For you were in my song Also on December 8th, live from Rockefeller Center in New York City. Ringo Starr here. I'm hosting Saturday Night Live. I'm a bit nervous, but I'll get by with a little help from my friends. All you got to do is act naturally. Ringo Starr hosts the NBC television late night comedy show, Saturday Night Live. This is Ringo Starr. As you know, he played drums for Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Oh, and the Beatles. Yeah, 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 them too. Tonight he's hosting Saturday Night Live. Recorded at 8 p.m. in New York's Radio City in the RCA building, the program opens with a comedy sketch, which sends up the prices people pay for original Beatles memorabilia. $50,000 for this guitar pick used by John Lennon in the recording of Eight Days a Week. <laughs> no? $45,000 going once, $45,000 going twice, Ah. Oh. So, for $45,000 to the gentleman sitting in the front row. Now, if you please turn to page 21 in your catalog, we now will take a look at lot 35. This is a very exciting little piece, a toothbrush used by the fabulous Paul McCartney in the recording of the album Rubber Soul. Now, as you see, it's a blue medium wristle oral B with one of those little pointy rubber things at the end. Yes, madam. Did Paul actually use the little rubber pointy thing? It is our understanding that he did, yes. <laughs> and I will open up the bidding at $60,000. Do I hear 60? $60,000. Do I hear 70? 70,000. 70. Do I hear 80? $80,000. Do I hear 90? $110,000. $110,000 going once. $110,000 going twice. Oh, sold for $110,000 to the lady in the front row. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please turn to page 22 in your catalog. Take a look at lot 36, Ringo Starr. the drummer with the Beatles and performed with them on all their albums and tours. And as you can see, he's in very good condition. And I, for one, would like to open the bidding at $75,000. Now, do I hear 75? <laughs> do I hear $75,000 for this drummer with the Beatles? Do I hear $65,000 for Ringo Starr, a member of the Beatles? <laughs> Talented musician. <laughs> Owner of a large ring collection. <laughs> yes, sir, 65,000? Oh, uh, no. Uh, I was wondering about the jacket he's wearing. Yes. Was it by any chance ever worn by Paul? <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't. I'm sorry. Now, do I have $15,000 for Ringo Starr? 
15,000. Good Lord, we're dealing with a human being here. Yes, madam. Does he actually do anything? Ah, yes, well, Anne really knows more about that than I. Oh, Anne, what does he do? Well, he uh, plays the drums. And uh, he has a, uh, a, a very interesting ring collection. Can he talk? Oh, yes, I think so. Ringo, would you read this? Live from New York, it's Saturday night! <laughs> going one, the one who changed his name, the one with the news. Well, I might have changed my name, but I didn't change my nose. Michael Jackson changed his nose. Tom Jones and Rod Stewart, Paul Anker too, they all changed the noses. That's why they're not legends. You see, I am a legend. Yes, I made the crossover from superstar to legend. <laughs> Mick and Elton are big, but they're not legends. Bob Dylan, he's a folk hero. Frank Sinatra's not a legend, but he's Italian. <laughs> Being a legend is a good life, but a little secluded. We just sit around watching reruns of Star Trek. Last month, my advisor at the Legends Clinic said I should get out and meet some real people. Well, that's why I finally agreed to appear on Saturday Night Live on American television, and this is the way to meet 35 million people all at once. Hi. <laughs> hi, people, hi, people. Okay, I told an old uh, legendary friend of mine that I was gonna host Saturday Night Live, and he said, wouldn't it be great if he came on and we did something together? Okie dokie. Where are we, brother? I mean, together. <laughs> it's sort of a last... <laughs> it's sort of a last-minute reunion. As a matter of fact, he flew in just this morning from London. Okie dokie. Please don't start screaming now. You know, I couldn't take that, and he couldn't. He's older than I am. So it's my good friend, Sammy Davis, Jr. I look positively hey. naked. Look at that, mm -hmm. Sammy in the sky with diamonds, you know. 
Well, it's great to see you again, Sammy. Mr. Starkey, this is... I'm telling you, folks, I'm getting such knockers up here. You have no idea, babe. A trip, an well, ultimate, you know. I'm going to tell him. Don't tell. I'm going to tell him, okay? Well, okay. You, nobody knows this, okay, besides Paul, George, and I. But Sammy worked with the Beatles, especially on Abbey Road. On right? Abbey Road, yeah. <laughs> And it wasn't really work, it was a labor of love, man. Because these cats were so much fun, you know, the mops, the mop tops. I loved them, you know. Oh, he's so modest, but just I... like Joey Bishop. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we had just finished doing the album, Abbey Road, vocals, actually, and right. Sam had been helping Paul with the vocals, right? Right, yeah. Because he has a lot of trouble, none of you know that, but Paul has a lot of trouble with his pitch. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> He can't hear good, you know. And what happened? Well, I, first of all, I laid in a lot of Paul's vocals for him. A lot of you don't know that, That's you know. That's true. He's given all the secrets away tonight. Well, you know, it's live, babe. You know, I know. that. From New York. Anyway, okay. the boys were doing the album cover of Abbey Road, you know, in the street and that whole gig, you know. And something didn't look kosher to me. So Mr. Starkey said, Sam talk to Paul. So I called Paul over and I said, Buttons, come here. You know, they don't know. Don't know, don't know. <laughs> I love this cat, man. And so the album cover didn't look good. I looked at Paul and I said, you know what? On the next shot, take your shoes and socks off. And it just cooked. It was me, you know. He did it. How is Paul? Oh, he's, you know, he's married now. He's got 18 yeah. kids. Uh-huh. <laughs> I called him up on the last one and said, are you a Catholic? <laughs> He's too wild, this cat. This is, this is exciting, man. I'm telling you, man. Sammy? What? Let's sing a song. Sing? No, I don't know if I could sing a tune, big. Thanks, I love that. It gives me too much spilkis. I mean... To write and arrange all the Beatle tunes that I did was one thing, man. But to sing live with you, you know, here, I mean, what would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song mm -hmm. and I'll try not to sing out of key. We get by with a little help from our friends, yeah. We're gonna try with a little help from our friends. Do you need anybody? I just want someone to love. Yeah. Let it be this old body. I want somebody to love. What kind of fool am I? <laughs> We never fell in love Eat your heart out, Newly It seems like I'm the only one That I've been thinking of mm -hmm. They're gonna put me In the movies Uh-huh, Ben <laughs> They're gonna make a big star out of me I'll be the biggest cat Who ever hit the big time I gotta be me. I gotta be me. Find the light. Sell it, babe. Oh, I gotta be me. 
do it or die. I love it. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. What the hell does that mean? I don't know. But he let us in. Uh-huh. Knows where we've been. Atlas Scholar with Frank. A little hideaway beneath the waves. This is so, this is so, so tasty, babe. I know. <laughs> and every time I see your face, it reminds me of the places we used to go. Like the stuff we did with the Maharishi, you know? <laughs> All I've got is a photograph yeah. And I realize yeah. you're not coming back anymore We all live in a yellow submarine A yellow submarine A yellow submarine Wow. You know what, Sammy? Mm -hmm. You are the walrus. <laughs> <laughs> well... This has been one of the great things in my life, babe, you know. Yeah, I know. I gotta get on the Concord and get back to London. I got another show to do tonight. Well, you I'd know. just like to thank you for flying all this way. Hey, I love Being you, Being such Starkey. a good, kind, dear friend to me. Hey, I love you, babe. You know yeah, that. I know that, yes. <laughs> mm hmm Okay. I get by with a little help from my friend. That's me, babe. I got high with a little help from his friend. <laughs> We get by with a little help from our friends, with a little help from our December 13th, over in London's High Court, the 1979 case of Apple Corps Limited versus EMI, whereas Apple is asking for 1.2 million pounds in back royalties from the period 1966 to 1979, is held. The judge orders a complete audit of the accounts from that period. Meanwhile, back in America on the same day, in an unrelated lawsuit that also stems back to the year 1979, Apple Corps is suing Capitol Records for $42.5 million in back royalties. The suit also requests that the Beatles are released from any legal ties to Capitol. Capitol files a $1.5 million countersuit, claiming the Beatles defaulted on their agreement to deliver two albums that was required under their original contract. The case is set to continue. Ironically, EMI and Capitol reissue the Beatles' single, I Feel Fine, for the 20th anniversary of its release. The single peaks at number 65 in the UK singles charts.
band that was really big in the 60s along with the Beatles, many bands were actually, but Deep Purple is a band that broke up in the 70s, as you well know, for an awful long time. They went their separate ways, and now they have gotten back together again. Deep Purple, Richie Blackmore putting them all together again with Ian Gillen on vocals. Huh? Not David Coverdale. Ian Gillen, the original vocalist. This is called Perfect Strangers. It's coming at you now. December 14th in Sydney, Australia, while taking a break from his recent book tour with Derek Taylor, George appears on stage with the rock band Deep Purple, who recently reformed. They were my neighbors, two of them, John and Ian. They lived by me. I've known them now for probably eight, nine years. And yet they were so famous in the 70s. And I got to know them in the period after they'd broken up before they reformed. So I never knew their music. I mean, I'd heard this one thing about smoke on the water or something like that. actually seen them and uh, I, I was I'd heard that the, the in the Guinness Book of Records for being the loudest group in the world so I thought well I was in Australia at the time and they happened to be doing a concert in Sydney so I thought I'd go and check them out get my earplugs and I'll go and see them
uh, I really enjoyed the show. I sat on the stage for part of the show behind the loudspeakers. And then I walked down and sat right in the center of the hall. And it was not too loud. And it was really funny. I, I liked it. I thought, Ian, who's my neighbor, Ian Pace, and he's such a good drummer. And John Lord, uh, rocking his organ. And, and Ian Gillen, I thought, he's just a scream. It's really funny. Enjoyed it, and then they said, "Yeah, here's the guitar. Come on!" So I just went on and sang. I don't know what it was. I was playing the wrong key and everything, but it didn't seem to matter. You have made it available for a few moments this evening on the uh, what's your name? Some audition. Arnold Drake. Arnold from Liverpool.
Over in the UK, Paul continues to promote his film Give My Regards to Broad Street. Now that Give My Regards to Broad Street's finished, what am I going to do with this hot rod? Don't you worry, Paul. We'll find a home for your hot rod. It's a customized 1955 Ford Popular with a 3.5-litre V8 engine, a seven-ball stick shift, and more flames than England has ever seen coming out of one fender. I'm Paul McCartney, and this is the car I drove in Give My Regards to Broad Street. I'd like you to have it. To win, send a postcard to MTV Hot Rod Giveaway, P.O. Box 1211, Radio City Station, New York, New York, 10101. The steering wheel is on the wrong side, it has two phones and a computer that don't work, but it's worth about $50,000, and you can see it in the 20th Century Fox release, Give My Regards to Broad Street. One postcard for one hot rod. What can I tell you? MTV's Hot Rod Giveaway, the sweetest deal in town. Out of over 200,000 entries, the winner is Annette M. Smith, who lives in Kenmore, New York. Paul also films a promotional message on Fuji TV to air in Japan. I'm giving my regards to everybody watching this show on Fuji TV. My new movie, Give My Regards to Broad Street, has just been released in Japan. I hope you'll enjoy it. Promotions for the film has Paul's schedule overflowing. In Britain on December 21st, on the ITV children's television program, Rolling the Rat, Paul is set to appear. What's the point? We should be using all my personal friends, then we wouldn't have these problems. It's a good job I got my old mate Paul McCartney in this banto, otherwise we wouldn't have any big names. Hello? Hello? Mr. Roland Rat, please. Yeah. Hold on a minute. Well, it's for you, Reynard. Who is it? Sounds like Paul McCartney. Hello? Hello, Roland. Hello, Paul. Uh, small friend, Paul McCartney. Hello, Paulie baby. <laughs> Hiya, how you doing? Long time no see, eh, Paul? <laughs> Listen, I've got some uh, bad news for you. We're getting really excited about you playing a bit part in my panto. I'm not going to be able to do it. Pardon, Paul? What did you say? No, there's uh, commitments and um, work and all sorts of things. I just can't make it. You can't appear in my panto? I fought to get you a part in my show. No, well, I'm sure, I'm sure you... You've got three lines in it, too. I wrote them specially for you. And what can I tell you, mate? I just can't make it. Good job I've got some of my own songs in it. Well, yes. Happy Christmas. You too. Give my love to Linda. I hope it goes great. Course it will, Paul. Lovely. It'll be brilliant. Good luck. I'm playing all the main parts. <laughs> Wonderful. I hope you understand. Yeah, of course I do, Paul. Good lad. See you then. Bye bye. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's my old mate, Paul McCartney. Yeah, he's a real superstar. Like me, Dos. Mulligan's Tires. Yeah, that's one of his hits. Yeah. He'd do anything for me. Yeah, yeah except appear in your panto. Well, he's a busy man, isn't he? What with all his new films and things. It does yeah. rather look as though no one wants to work with you, Reynard. How dare you! Can't be, he's meant to be here. Glennis, have you seen Roland? No, Kevin, I've been looking absolutely everywhere for him too. 
Oh dear, well we'll just have to open the door without him. Eh, uh, so Rat fans, have you got your advent calendars at the ready? It's door number 24, and because tomorrow is Christmas Day, this is our last door, and it brings our calendar to an end. I just wish I knew where Roland was. Oh well, <laughs> we'd better open it uh, without him. So, fingers at the ready, open your door, wait for it. Now! On the day before Christmas, where can Roland be? Surprise! Surprise! Da da! Ho Super, doesn't he look dashing? The costume came from Harris, thanks to Kevin's money. Oh, dearie me. I need to go to the toilet. Please excuse me, because suddenly I don't feel very well. I know how you feel. I can't see the point in getting all excited. It's the same every year. I prefer the ice dead board. <sighs> now, come on, lads. It's Christmas, ain't it? Let's celebrate. Tomorrow we can open all our prezzies. Yeah. Two, three, four. So from all of us, we wish you a happy Christmas. And Rap Bands, we love you. I'd like to say to all my friends in America, uh, thank you for watching, and I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a very peaceful New Year. indeed and from all of us here a very happy Christmas to you have a safe and a happy and a peaceful Christmas a very good morning to you from all of us here happy Christmas December 25th Christmas Day Christmas time There's no need to be afraid At Christmas time We let in light And we vanish it
December 29th, Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Hi, I'm Dick Clark, and we have been uh, raiding my office once again here. Let me, let me show this thing to you. I'm sure you recognize John Lennon, and uh, that's Cynthia, his wife at the time. And the little guy, well, that's Julian Lennon, and a dog. It's funny, I remember when uh, Julian came to the office, you saw that thing hanging there. He ran over, and he recognized the dog. I can't, I can't remember the dog's name, but he knew, and he said, Oh, yeah, I remember Fido, whatever it was. I, I don't know how old he was in that picture. He was just a kid, but... I've always had a very warm feeling for Julian. I like him because he made his own mark in music later on, and it's uh, extraordinarily difficult to live in the shadow of a father of tremendous fame. But as I say, he did make his mark, and you'll see him today. I have a sneaky suspicion this fellow will not be able to be with us. I think he's going home for the holidays. I don't know how he's going to spend his New Year's. We'll find out when we get there. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Julian Lennon. Very much. Yeah, here, I'll tell you what, we'll just slip this aside like so. Uh, would you introduce me to the drummer, please? This is uh, Carlos Vega. He's just joined us for today and helping. Carlos, thank you very much for a uh, helping hand. The gentleman on guitar? Uh, Mr. Justin Clayton. He has not just joined you. No, no, he's been with me for about 10 years now. Yeah. I, I know you hang around his house. I read about that. Is he, is he a good neighbor? Yeah. No, it, it makes no comment. The man on the end. Uh, Carlos Morales. Carlos, welcome. Nice to have you here. I, uh, there are a lot of things I want to ask you, uh, and you have answered a lot of questions, but I have a very, this is a very heavy program. We ask serious questions here. And there's a question from the audience. There's a young woman standing in the dark over here. You may or may not be able to see her. This is the lead-off question. This is commensurate with what color do you like? She wants to know if you're single. Uh, um, sort of, no. <laughs> I lied to you. All right, enough of the frivolity. Are you happy with your life? Yeah, very much so. Everything's going well. When did you start preparing this album? Well, uh, all the material that was on the album was written uh, beforehand anyway, just for the sake of writing music. Um, so when we got the record deal, we already had the music, you know, so it was uh, pretty much already there. What was the first instrument you ever played? Uh, it was guitar with Justin at school. Did he teach you or vice versa, or was it collaborative? No, we, we both got taught by uh, the gymnast teacher in the school. You know, and we, whenever the fellow we, who taught Jim taught you to play the guitar? Yeah, whenever, well, he's an old rock and roller, and whenever we had a break in school, he'd take us uh, back to, like, the gym, and we'd play away, you know, learning old rock and roll songs. Are you going home for the holidays? Yeah, sure am. Where will you be New Year's? Um, I'm not certain. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, enjoy. Uh, on a more serious note, now that this is such a big hit, and there had to be a certain amount of trepidation going in, it's not as a big hit. Are you afraid of the future at all? Well, um, uh, I'm, I've got a lot to work on for the next album. I mean, to make it as good, or if not better, you know. So uh, me and Justin will have to be working away there. So you work over the holidays after your party. What is the next song? Uh, the next one's Too Late for Goodbyes. I can't tell you how pleased I am you're here. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, Julian Lennon.
December 31st, New Year's Eve. We just got word the New Year's ball is about to drop. So let's go to Andy Williams and Ernestine on Times Square. Ernestine, I'd like you to... Happy New Year, by the way. I would like Happy you to meet... Year to you. Thank you. This is uh, Christian. How do you and this is Bobby. Ernestine. How do you do? And behind you, there's Noel. Hello, Noel. How nice to see you. Oh, isn't this the wildest thing you've ever seen? I, one thing I like most about New Year's, it's a sure sign that Christmas is over. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. But I've never seen so many people here. Sixty seconds to go. 1984. What a year! We renewed Ron's lease at the White House. We've got 50 seconds to go. Right. Miss Liberty gave up her torch to a repairman, and a torchbearer in L.A. lit the Olympic flame. How much now, Lily? Almost 40 seconds to go. 40 seconds to go. And in 1984, we saw the telephone company broken up. Oh yes, and that was the biggest mistake you've ever made. Go ahead, kick us while we're down. <laughs> Buddy, see you in 1985. For more information or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Also visit at YesterdayPod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time.
I'm Paul Kaminsky. I'm James Kaminsky. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. And we bring you the Kaminsky family of podcasts Yesterday and Today and the Third Men podcast. You might know me from one of those dumb voices I do, or my dad <laughs> from his better show than ours. <laughs> wow. And we're here to tell you about some cool merchandise you can pick up for the shows. As we mentioned in each episode, we do not in any way profit from these shows whatsoever, but to break even on some expenses, we have put up some cool merch that you can pick up to help support the show. Yes, some fun apparel, things you can put on yourself. Are we going to be selling Marks and Spence underwear? <laughs> Don't worry, we will. You can head to our social media pages, that's facebook.com slash yesterdayandtodaypodcast or facebook.com slash thirdmen, or you could head to society 6 dot com slash Kaminsky Family Podcast. That's society the number six dot com slash K-A-M-I-N-S-K-I Family Podcasts. Yeah. Keep our lights on. I'm in the dark. <laughs> Dad, any words of wisdom? Hello? The lights just went out. <laughs> Guys, we need your help. <laughs> Buy stuff. Perhaps a coffee mug that you can enjoy a beverage out of while listening to our shows. And if you haven't got yours, please send forth in and get a free one. Alright. Thank you, Dad. All right, we'll see you on the podcast, folks. Bye. It's audio. You can't see me. Oh, for God's sake.